this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by bizbuysell.com, the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. So here's a challenge. I want you to type into Google, business for sale. What comes up? My guess is one of the first top three natural search listings that pop up is going to be bizbuysell.com. They are by long shot the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. They've got something like 47,000 businesses listed for sale. They've also got one of the largest directories of business brokers online. So if you're looking to have some help and support taking your business to market and you want to find a business broker, it's a place, great place to go. They've also put together recently a guide to selling a small business. You know, if you think about what we're all about here at Built to Sell Radio, it's about helping you take your business to market, helping point out some of the big pitfalls, some of the big obstacles to taking your business to market. And this guidebook can be a really good little tips and tricks on what to think about before you go to sell. You can download it by going to bizbuysell.com slash built. That's bizbuysell.com forward slash built. Hey, I think you're going to like this next story from a guy named Hank Goddard, who started a business called Mainspring Healthcare Solutions. I mean, the headline number is that he got five times top line revenue for his business. So a huge outcome by any measure, just an incredible multiple for his business. A couple of unique things I want you to listen for as you hear the, you know, the episode. Listen to how he structured the options pool in his company and the lessons he had in, if he were to do it over again. Have a listen for what his advice is on hiring C-level talent into a business also pay special attention to his kind of words of wisdom, words of caution maybe around the capital table and in particular using preferred shares with investors. Oftentimes it's a tool venture capitalists use to dilute, even wipe out uh, entrepreneurs on the cap table. So have a listen to his kind of sage wisdom around using preferred shares and structuring deals with interest rates and so forth. Uh, lots of good stuff in this episode from Hank Goddard. Here's Hank to tell you the rest of the story. Hank Goddard, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. So you are a serial entrepreneur. You've had a number of businesses, but this company Mainspring is one that we wanted to focus on today. So maybe kind of take us back. How did you get into this business in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, back uh, after I went to business school and after business school, I worked at a consulting firm and uh, I met a, a guy there named Troy Kenyon and, and Troy and I decided to go start our own business. Um, so we left that firm and, uh, and we had this hypothesis that, um, that there was money to be made in asset management in healthcare. What does and, that mean? Asset management? That sounds kind of like a financial services term. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's, that's it, a very good point. It's a, it's a term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, asset management in this particular case is, uh, hospitals buy, uh, medical equipment, they spend a lot of money on that, about $20 billion per year in the United States. And they do very little to manage that equipment from the time they buy it um, and then uh, ex you know, keeping it maintained and trying to extend the life and making it safe for patients. And then what to do it on the tail end of the life cycle. So it's 
really a life cycle management of physical assets. So I'm at a hospital, I've got a, you know, a $300,000 MRI machine and I buy the thing and then it just sits there until it breaks and, and there's no software that's managing when I bought it, when I should do upgrades, when I should have maintenance done on it. It's just, it's sort of there until it breaks and then everybody runs around trying to figure out how to fix it. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of different pieces in, uh, of that equation that were out in the market. And the one that was really formed already was uh, the maintenance piece of that. So there, are, there were federal requirements around how certain pieces of equipment had to be maintained. And there were specialized maintenance management software that managed all of those inspections and tests and repairs and all of that kind of stuff because you had to have a, a good record of all of that. So there was software out there before you started there was for that particular piece on maintenance. And so as we looked at that market, we said, look, we wanna be able to go in and manage this portfolio of physical assets from the time you're deciding what to buy to the time you're trying to decide how to get rid of it. And a big piece of that is this maintenance component and trying to, uh, that software that manages maintenance is, is kind of like an ERP system. It's very complicated uh, and there's not a lot of money in it. So uh, the thought was, let's buy one of those and use that as a platform to build this bigger vision on top of. So you went out and bought a company? We did. We went out. We actually bought the assets of a company. Uh, How did you get the money? Because, I mean, you guys were a couple of young guys right out of, like, consulting jobs, making a good wage, I'm assuming. But, like, how do you, how do you have enough money to actually buy a company? Well, you know, we checked under the seat cushions in the car, and uh, we, we pulled some change together. Um, actually, we, we ended up going to some friends and family, and we raised um, the money we needed. And it, it didn't require a lot of money. It turned out that the company that had the best reputation in the market was in a state of disarray at the time. So we reached out to them to see if they were they would consider selling, and they were actually desperate to get out of the company um, because of a personal situation between the, the, there were three owners, a husband, a wife, and a husband's best friend. And the, uh, the wife and the best friend became really close. And- uh, A little too close? A little too close. <laughs> and, um, let's just say that the dynamics of the company uh, weren't very good. And the whole thing was basically had fallen, fallen apart at that point. So we came in and we basically just bought the assets of the company. And so what did, you, what did you pay for those assets in terms of, I mean, maybe the number, but also, you know, to get people a frame of reference, like how much is this costing you to buy the assets? Yeah, we, we bought that company for uh, less than $500,000. Off the top of my head, I think we paid uh, 300, maybe 200 or 300,000 cash. And then there was an earnout that they ended up not receiving because um, they didn't disclose some liabilities that came up. And, um, and then we put a few hundred thousand dollars into the company right out of the gate to help rebuild it. Got it. So you buy this company for a couple hundred grand up front and you raise the money from friends and family. I mean, how much, how much of your business do you have to give up to raise the money from friends or family? Or did you use like um, you know, convertible debt or just debt to, to, uh, to buy the company? Yeah, we, it was, uh, we basically went to uh, this group of people and we put in money and they put in money and we got our, we all got our prorated portion of the company. Um, I, as I recall in that transaction, my partner and I got an extra, say 20% of the company or so for pulling the deal together. Okay, sweat equity. Happened. Sweat equity. And then we came in and, uh, and he actually ran the company for the first year to kind of get it up and running and get it going in the right direction. And we got a, uh, a set of stock options uh, that were basically priced at zero on top of that. So that was sort of what we got out of the deal. And the thought was really, it wasn't to get in and, and run this company and, and own it and, uh, and build it ourselves. The idea was to come in, get it started, bring in the management team, 
and then go about our business of um, investing in other companies and buying other companies. But it didn't quite work out the way we planned. So how did it work out? Well, after the first six to 12 months when, uh, when my partner Troy was running the company, um, we brought in a management team from a, a large enterprise resource planning ERP company that focused on healthcare. And uh, we put a little bit more money in the company, uh, growth capital, and, um, and that didn't work out very well uh, over the course of a few years because the, that team was not used, they, they weren't very entrepreneurial. They didn't know how to operate in a startup environment, which this was, we were basically taking, you know, we had a few customer contracts um, and some software, but it was largely a, a, a startup environment. We were rebuilding the product and they didn't operate very well in that environment. And, um, and, and the company ended up in a state of disarray again. I want to go. I want to get more into the state of disarray, but before, I mean, you've obviously learned a lot through the experience. If you had an entrepreneur come to you and say, Hank, I want to hire my first true C-level kind of executive, you know, chief operating officer, head of sales, head of operations, whatever. What advice would you give them? Uh, you know, I would say you've got to find somebody that has, um, that has small company experience, preferably in a high growth environment. And you've got to find somebody that understands in my opinion, you have to find somebody that understands the market and can sell. And those are really the, the key things. Uh, the other stuff, the administrative stuff, the you know, putting the financial systems in place and, and HR systems, you can find somebody to do that stuff. But if you don't have the right leader that has the ability to, um, you know, to put a company on his back or her back and move it forward, it's gonna, it's not gonna turn out very well. Got it. So no. in your case, it didn't. It all went pear-shaped. It was really bad. Um, it, it came to a head in a board meeting where uh, we found out that there was there were unpaid uh, salaries, unpaid expenses for people's travel, um, and we were all under the impression on the board that the company was cash flow positive at the time. So we made a big change. We we um, we took the entire management team out, and that was the point where. We had to take a hard look at the company and decide, is this company worth trying to move forward uh, or should we just wind it down? Um, and that's when my life changed radically uh, as we made that decision. In what respect? Well, we, we took a hard look at the company and said, you know, we still believed in the vision and um, we still believed that the company had a good reputation in the market and a, good, a fairly good product set. Um, and we, we wanted to try to move it forward. So my partner, Troy and I, um, we, we immediately uh, wrote a check and put it into the company, despite not having an agreement with any of the investors around how that would be handled to, so that the company could make payroll and get some of these back expenses paid. And then we started the process of a two-year two -year negotiation with the, uh, with the other investors uh, on how the capital structure would look. Um, and as we went through that, I stepped into the company as what I thought was going to be the interim CEO for six months and turned out to be a, around a five-year uh, process of, of turning that company around and, and growing into something different. So you guys, you and Troy write a personal check. I mean, was it characterized on the balance sheet as a loan to the company? You know, it was, uh, we, we threw it in there as a loan and... Um, it was a short-term loan on the balance sheet, and we knew that it was, you know, that it was going to be something that was negotiated with everybody, which it was. Um, and basically, what happened was Troy and I ended up with uh, none of the other investors had any faith in this company. It had been through this 
restart process. Um, and nobody wanted to invest any more money and, uh, and folks just wanted their money back. And, and we, we kind of dug in and we said, look, we believe in this and we want to take it forward. And to do that, we'd like to have 90% of the company and we'll, we'll fund it and we'll grow it. And when we exit, you know, we'll, we'll restructure this to where all of you guys that are already in this, um, we're not going to cram you down. We're going to, we're going to leave you in the company, uh, in the capital structure in a way that will allow you to get your money back and to get a, a decent, you know, low mid single digit return on your money. Um, but, uh, but the upside is going to be ours. And that's why it took two years to negotiate. Uh, but we finally came to an agreement that, that we all thought was fair and we moved it forward from there. So if I'm on the other side of that negotiating table and I was like, I've, I've put in risk capital into this deal and you're telling me you're going to dilute me down to some single digit number. I, I got to imagine those are tough conversations. They were tough. And a lot of these guys are, you know, they're friends and, uh, and they still are, um, it, you know, the way this type of thing usually would go down. Well, it was, it was either wind the company down and all of us got zero or somebody tries to fix it. We were the only ones that were willing to try to fix it. And we said, look, we'll try to fix it. And we're not gonna cram you down to zero. We're gonna cram you down to where you still have a preference. So if we ever turn this around and sell it, we want you to get all the money back that you put in. And we want you to get an annualized return on that. That's at least what you would have had, you know, in an IRA or something, and you know, 5% or something like that. So it turned out that you know, everybody was pretty happy with that, that they were, you know, they had a preference to get their money back out at the end. And then the upside was largely ours, but we also had a mechanism in there that would share the upside with the, uh, with the original investors, just to a smaller extent than they would have had in the original capital structure. Hank, explain for folks what you mean by preference. Yeah, the preference is when you, uh, certain investors are, they get their money out before other investors. So the way that normally would work is um, you know let's say that you have a venture capitalist come in and they put money into your company and they they put five million dollars in they'll have they, typically they would have a preference they would have a preferred stock which would mean if there was any kind of liquidation event good or bad that that five million plus whatever annual interest rate was negotiated would get paid back before anybody else got any money and this is how a lot of venture capitalists wipe out entrepreneurs right the, the it, preference it, is is there and the interest rate is so punitive that if enough time goes by <laughs> the interest rate uh starts to accrue and become such a huge number that it, entrepreneurs it often get wiped out that is a really really great point that a lot of people don't realize and when you're negotiating these deals and you think that yeah you know that doesn't sound too bad 12 percent, you know they should be able to get a 12 percent return on their money but then it ends up taking you 12 years to get out of the, this company that you're in and in the end you realize you know you're selling it for 40 million dollars and the the venture capitalists are taking 36 million of it because their money grew so quickly and compounded over time. So you have to be extremely careful when you're uh, negotiating those deals. And, and we, we, we messed that up. That was one of our big learnings too in this deal. When we negotiated it, um, the, the investor group was willing to give us everything we were asking for, but they said, look, we want our money back and we want it quickly. So what we want is a, a ticking clock. So every year that goes by, we get more. Interesting. And so how did that work? Well, it, it, it ended up influencing our decision on whether we sell the company or not, because we knew that, uh, you know, there was a, you know, we sold the company in 2016 and the thought was, you know, there are business cycles out there. We could be at the tail end of a business cycle. And if we don't sell right now, 
um, and we miss a business cycle, we could be in for another five or seven year run before the markets are uh, excited again and you're able to get high multiples. And if you looked at what you would have to do over that period of time in order to make up for this ticking clock in the background, not to mention time cost of money and your own, you know, your own time you're spending on it, um, that, that's what led us to the decision to sell. So you sold the 2016. When are you in these negotiations with the original uh, friends and family round to uh, the restructure? Like 2009, 2010 timeframe. And I think we closed that uh, restructuring at the end of 2010, early 2011. Got it. So and we were still in there, sort of, you know, keeping, trying to keep the company alive and uh, trying to fix some product issues and trying to fix some customer employee issues. Um, and, and just to make sure we had at least a platform to work with if we were able to get the restructuring done. So you structured the deal that says, look, you've got to sell this within what, five years, or, or we want to hire. Uh, interest rate on our yeah it was it was like a, i think it was a three-year uh a, a three-year holiday and then the clock started ticking and every year you know we were losing you know i don't know i can't remember what it was but you know a few points of our returns so you start to look at wow you have to really keep growing this thing in terms of your exit value and we're just tied to the general market conditions um you know if you're going to keep driving this thing forward fascinating so Tell us what's going on in the business at this time. I understand the capital structure and some of the negotiations with the original founding team. What's, how's the business progressing at this point? I mean, what, what's your, kind of, what are you up to in terms of revenue or, or what, key product changes? Because at the beginning, it was just maintenance. I'm assuming you expanded the feature set a little bit. We did. We had expanded the feature set to cover the life cycle of equipment. So from the um, looking at what you should be buying and taking actual data from performance of equipment, to feed into the decision-making process of how often something breaks, how, how much does it cost to maintain, you know, are there safety issues with it, all those kinds of things. Um, through to the end of the life cycle, when you're thinking about should we replace something or repair it, um, or should we sell it, um, and helping to have uh, all of that life cycle data in terms of trying to um, help make those decisions. And so we had taken that, we expanded the product set, we moved it over into the cloud, we started to take the company from a perpetual license model, which is what it was when we, when we came in uh, and started to try to turn the company around. It was around a million dollars of perpetual license revenue at that time. And perpetual license for folks who don't know that software lingo, it means you buy the software once you own it forever versus what we all know as you know, SaaS or cloud-based exactly. uh, software where you, you pay a rental fee over time or a subscription fee. So in the early days, it was perpetual, bought it once and then you owned it and then you moved to SaaS? It, we did. So it was about a million dollars in revenue, about 200,000 that was recurring for maintenance and support on that license agreement. And so what we did is we started migrating that over to the cloud. We started migrating our business model over to software as a service. And, um, and at that point we were starting to get some traction. We were, we had the recurring revenue was now up to about a million dollars. And this was probably in the 20, 2012 timeframe, 2013. We, we had a couple of big customers that understood our vision and, and could see, it, it was very clear how much money you could save. It was millions of dollars for a hospital that they, they could save every year if they managed this equipment better. And so we're, we were pretty, feeling pretty damn good about ourselves and what our um, future looked like. And, and then, um, you know, but sales still weren't growing as much as, as fast as I wanted them to. They were still only growing about 10 or 20% a year, which is really, which sounds good, but it's really low when you consider how small the base was at the time. 
So we ended up, um, this was a real, another real turning point in, in the history of the companies. We went to a, uh, an industry event where we were able to uh, pitch our solution to a group of um, senior supply chain executives from hospitals. And so we get up there and we had, you know, we had refined this thing and practiced it over and over. It was, it was me and, a, and the guy that was running our running sales at the time, uh, who was one of the guys that really changed the company uh, with his, with his uh, commitment. And uh, we got up and we, we pitched this idea around the total life cycle management of equipment. And the, the audience loved it. At the end, they said, this is fantastic. There's not a hospital in the world that shouldn't have this system in place. And so we were patting each other on backs and then they said, and no one will ever buy this. And you know, so we were kind of back on our heels and, and they explained to us that you know, what, you're, what you're saying is true, but you need to understand that when you're talking about doing all this in a hospital, you're talking about five or six different parts of the organization that are all very siloed in most places. You know, hospitals are not the most you know, forward thinking uh, companies in terms of operations or organizational control. And you're never going to get all these people to do it. It's too scary. It's too big. You need to, yeah. you need to ratchet back your solution to something smaller and bite-sized and, um, and put a sharper point on it. And which was great. So we, we kind of walked away from that dazed and somewhat confused, but the, uh, the real problem was that when you put our big idea together, you could save hospitals millions of dollars a year. But when you, when you started to dismantle that and talk about the point solutions, the sum of those point solutions was a fraction of what the, of the value that you could create with the full solution. So now we're in a real quandary where we're saying that, um, you know, our big idea is great and is worth a lot of money, but no one's going to buy it, break it down to smaller solutions that no one's going to be willing to pay for. So what'd you do? Well, we, we went back home with our tail between our legs and we spent a couple of days in the conference room and, um, we started thinking, we took a step back and we said, you know what, let's think about the assets that we currently own and what they do, the so the different types of software we had. And then let's think about the, you know, our market a little more broadly and where the value really lies in the hospital. We, we came up with this concept of taking a couple of our current products and repositioning them with a different buyer in the hospital. And the idea was basically to take, uh, take these products that have been in the market for six or seven years and put a different face on them and create an Uber like app for the doctors and nurses in the hospital to order anything they needed. And then to be able to have that immediately dispatch out to the appropriate person and have uh, real-time two-way uh, communication between the person fulfilling that order and the person that needs the order. So this could have been anything from uh, infusion pump to a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for some kid that just came in and was hungry. And so we came up with this idea and we had some customers that had been sort of talking about it already. And um, we went and tested it in the market and started to get some pretty good feedback and, uh, and pilot it. And within say six months or so had made the decision that we were going to change the focus of the company and go after this hard. This sounds like a huge, I mean, 
like the popular parlance in entrepreneurial circus these days is a pivot. <laughs> this sounds more like a 360 degree shift. From, yeah, it was, a, it was an ankle breaker. <laughs> yeah, like I kind of got your business model five minutes ago when you're saying, you know, kind of maintain the hardware and blah, blah, blah. And now you're talking about Ubering up peanut butter sandwiches for people in yeah. a hospital. Like this is a big deal. Yeah. It's a big shift. It's a big shift. And we went from selling to guys who were in charge of maintaining equipment and buying equipment to selling to nurses and to selling to uh, uh, some of the more the folks in charge of uh, just keeping the operations running smoothly in the hospital, which they call support services groups. So what is the business model that you moved to? So we, we, it was still software as a service, but it was what we did is we built some very simple apps on the front end and the back end of our, of our super powerful engine that we had that did all this stuff already. Because we and already the, had the ability. And the hospital would buy a subscription or did the individual user buy a subscription? How was that? The hospital bought the subscription. So we, we, were, able to take our, we were able to take our core product. We built, like I said, a simple app on the front. We called I Need It which was just some simple icons where you could push it with your thumb a few times and order whatever you wanted and see what was going on on the nursing side. And then I got it, which was a simple app that you, you, the lowest paid guys in the hospital are the ones, are, that, are, the ones that are um, filling these, uh, these requests. So it had to be super simple, super easy to use. And, um, and then our engine in the middle made it all work. That engine already existed and was in the market so it's just really putting the front end and back end on. And when we did that, we were able to, like I said, we, were just, we changed who we were selling to and we raised our pricing by about 5X and it was all software as a service. So we went from selling software for uh, $1,000 a month to some cases $10,000 a month to a hospital. Wow, that's incredible. So because in 2013, you were around, you're saying around a million dollars in revenue. Yeah. And so that's how you got to 5 million in revenue it wasn't selling five times more customers. It was, it was increasing your price based on the improvement of the product. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. So before we made that pivot, we had built our customer base up and we had 150 or so great customers that were hospitals, very, you know, New York Presbyterian Hospital and Cleveland Clinic and Cedar sinai out in the West Coast and some of the greatest hospitals in the country. And they just weren't paying us that much. And then we started rolling this new solution out and started realizing, holy moly, we can charge you know, three to five X what we were charging. So our key metric we started tracking was uh, our annual revenue per account. And so we would look at it, we had a, a histogram type of chart and we would look at it and say, you know, th these guys are, you know, we have some customers that are paying us $300,000 a year and some customers that are paying us $3,000 a year. Let's go after that $3,000 account. We're already in there and ratchet those guys up to a higher number. So how did you do that? I mean, I'd be curious to know, did you walk into the head of purchasing and saying, we're, we, you know, we've changed our app or was it more gradual? Like, how did you get someone from, you know, paying you $10,000 a year to paying you $50,000 a year? Like, how, was that a gradual thing or was it sort of flip the switch, bigger features, you know, you got to pay us more? It was flip the switch. So what we did is, is when we, we, you know, we piloted this, we, we came up with these new apps. We had some betas out in the market testing it. And um, we decided that this is what we were going to do. So it was, it was me and my partner, Troy, and uh, a, a couple of key guys that were involved in, uh, from the product side and the sales side that, side that helped us make that decision. And then what we decided to do is we got the entire management team and then some of the, the really big influencers in the company in an offsite meeting. We rented this really sweet, um, 
this huge uh, conference center on the top floor of a hotel in downtown Boston overlooking the city. And we got all these guys in there for two days and we walked them through this concept of you know, what we're currently doing, what assets we have, the whole thought process we had gone through. We walked through all this with them and had them in kind of a working session and everybody uh, got fully bought into this new vision that we had. And when, when they did, we used, have you seen Simon Sinek's uh, Golden Circle? And yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of our rallying cry. We played that video for everybody and then we had our, our, our big why statement on what we were doing and why we were doing it. We got this, this core part of the company bought into this vision and we walked out of that meeting and said, we're rebranding the company. We're changing the name of the company from St. Croix Systems, which is what it was called at the time because it was founded in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin. And we changed it to Mainspring Healthcare Solutions because Mainspring is that the, the, the mainspring and a clock that makes all the parts move and, and makes everything work. Awesome. So Simon Sinek, for those who haven't checked out that YouTube video, it's got like, you know, it's one of the most common um you know, TED Talks out there, uh, it talks about, you know, most of us as we communicate, we talk about how we do things or what we do, but, you know, the, the most kind of compelling leaders, the most, you know, people who follow others uh, or, or people who get others to follow them, excuse me, start with why, why they do something. Then they go to what they do and then how they do it. Uh, I think I'm getting that uh, order correct, uh, but it's worth checking out Simon Sinek on uh, TED Talks. Yeah, I, I can't recommend it high enough for anybody doing anything in life, whether you're an entrepreneur or just working for a company, once you start to understand how to start with why, which is the name of one of his books, um, it is really a, uh, a life-changing event. And so we got this core group involved and then we started to, uh, it was shortly after that, we had our annual company meeting. We brought everybody in. We got everyone indoctrinated into this. We had everybody doing their own why statements around this and how we were, how healthcare is so broken in the United States and how much money hospitals spend, how they waste all this money on operations and how we were going to help solve that problem. And then we took that out into the market. So we took out this new mainspring healthcare solutions with these totally cool looking, sexy, simple apps. We didn't show them all of the the powerful engine underneath, which is what we used to sell. We just sold them the apps. And we would walk in and our sales cycle went from a year to in some cases, less than three months in selling something that was five times as, uh, the value of, of what we were selling before. It was a, a complete massive shift in how we talked, how we acted, what we sold, um, but it was still the same stuff under the hood. And so how, how much revenue did you get this business up to, you know, roughly by the time you decided it was time to sell? We were, our recurring revenue was about $5 million in revenue in uh, a year, 5 million a year. Got it. Okay. And so let's get into the sale itself. I mean, what triggered, it sounds like this kind of ticking time bomb, the fact that every year that went by, you were getting diluted by a couple of extra points from this original investor pool. I mean, that was weighing on your mind, but was there a sort of a triggering event that made you say, okay, now's the time to go? Yeah, there was, there was a, you know, it was 2015. It was early 2015. And uh, a company, Accruent, the company that ended up buying us, bought our number one competitor in the maintenance management space. So that, that core product we initially bought, they bought the competitor to that product. And, and I just so happened to know the guy that was uh, on the chairman of the board who, was, uh, who worked for the private equity firm that owned Accruent. And they called me up and asked me to come meet the Accruent guys and, uh, down and have dinner with them and all that. So I met with them and we met in their... And we had dinner and the next day we we talked in their boardroom and 
And they said, look, we want to buy you guys too. And we'll give you, it was just over one X revenue. And, you know, and I said, you guys, you have absolutely no idea what we're doing and you need to, um, you will never sell for anything near that. And, um, you really need to, to, to hear our full story. And, and they basically, you know, it was a veiled threat of look, you know, we, we own these guys now and we're big and it's a small part of our overall business. So we can just, you know, reduce price. We can really give it to you guys in the shorts and you really should just sell to us. And, you know, I, I had been through the school of hard knocks in this market and, and knew it inside and out. And, um, it's just not an easy market to compete in. And I said, you know, you guys call me in one year after you figure out what you're going to do with this asset you just bought our competitor and we'll talk again. And it was about a year later when they called me back. <laughs> it was almost exactly a year later. And, and what they did is they had the, the business development guy at Accruent start to call us. And I just ignored his phone calls until the private equity guys called me. Why'd you do that? Because I, I knew they wanted the bias and I just wanted, I knew that they were going to try to uh, give us a low offer. And so it was all just, it was, it, it was all just posturing and positioning from the very beginning. It's like, I'm not going to, start negotiations with some, you know, no offense, some low level business development guy at a portfolio company in this private equity firm when I, when I know the decisions are being made at the board level with the private equity guys. So waited until, uh, until this guy who's a friend of mine, um, acquaintance, uh, called me up and said, why are you ignoring this guy? You got to talk to him. And I said, Hey man, I'm happy to come down and talk to you anytime. So went down there and talked to them and they made us an offer for, I think it was like two X our revenue was, you know, it would, in 2014, it was around 4 million. In 2015, it was around 5 million of recurring. And um, they made us an offer of about 2X. And we said, you know, no, this is our number. And, you know, you, I said, there's no justification for this number. It's just under 5X revenue. And this is the number we're willing to sell for. So and you, wanted, you, wanted, you wanted 5X revenue? We wanted 5X revenue, yeah. And they're offering you two. Yeah. And so they told us we were crazy. You know, and you know how that story goes. So it went back and forth. And um, and basically, we came up with that number. Uh, my partner, Troy, and I, we came up with that number by just sitting down and saying, look, you know, we're, we, we think we're, you know, heading toward a, the end of a business cycle. If we don't sell now, it's probably seven years out. Um, we don't have the bandwidth right now to go run a process. But we know what the market will bear right now. If you're, if you're really lucky, you're going to get four or five times revenue. So if we can sell it for that... We'll sell it for that. And we have to I mean, when you say when you're really, I just want to be clear, uh, four to five times revenue would be for a SaaS based cloud based recurring revenue software platform. That's, that's yeah. not what everybody should expect for their company. <laughs> no, no, it's definitely not. Um, yeah, for, you know, that, that's on your recurring revenue and it's, uh, um, you know, we had multi-year contracts and we had 95% customer retention. You know, there are a lot of things that go into that, uh, a lot of metrics that start to factor into what your uh, multiple should be. And, you know, we knew that that's where we had a really solid, small, but very solid business that was growing quickly. Um, and, a, and a customer base that was largely untapped. We also knew that the customers that uh, Accruent had acquired with their, their uh, acquisition of our competitor were also accounts that we could sell our new solution into. So we knew there was a ton of upside for them. So it well, gave we us- Chain Were lever. you able to get any sort of uh, idea of what Accruent paid for your competitor on a, on a multiple of revenue? Yeah, it was about one. It was about one X. 
they, they had a low revenue, they had a, a low recurring revenue uh, stream. And it was mostly selling to um, this old maintenance management. So if you looked at dollars per account or dollars per account per year, it was about 10% of what ours was. Got it. So Accruits bought your biggest competitor for one time's revenue. They make you that offer and you say, go stuff it. They come back a year later and they're offering two times revenue. And you say what? Well, basically, and we'd run the math and um, we knew what the market would bear if we got really lucky. Um, and then the other thing that was going on in the background, which I should mention, is that the company grew so quickly from, from basically nothing, from $1 million of, of just basic revenue to $5 million recurring revenue that we were going through a lot of growing pains. And there was a big investment that was going to be needed, that, was, that would need to be made in all the back office systems and hiring administrators and HR people and middle managers and yada, yada. And I didn't have the stomach for that. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't see myself as a guy who runs companies. I see myself as a guy who in, normally invests in them. Um, and I'd sort of run. Uh, Sounds like I, they're coming for you, Hank. I know they are. Yeah. <laughs> a crew guy saying I gave away too much information on this call. Yeah, they're coming for you. They're coming to arrest you for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, so, so that was going on in the background. We knew we had, the company was getting ready to go through a big step change operationally. And I wasn't sure that I had the appetite for it. And, and so we just went in there and we said, look, guys, here's the deal. You know, we are willing to sell the company for this amount of money and all cash, no earnout, no stock, nothing, just cash. 5X, and 5X revenue. That's revenue how cash. much money ends up in my bank account at the end. You can justify it using whatever metrics you want. Um, and I'm not going to help you do that, but that's what we're willing to sell for. And that's what we said. And they came back with something that was very close to that. And we said, okay. And I mean, actually they came back and said something very close to that. And then Troy and I were, you know, it was kind of a holy shit moment. Oh my God, they're, they're actually going to do this. Do we really want to sell this company? Because we knew it had a tremendous amount of upside left. Um, but then after we evaluated the business cycle and the ticking time bomb in the background and, you know, the fact that we had to go through this next, next big, um, you know, internal growth phase, uh, we just decided that it was time. And, and, and that's, the, that's the danger, obviously, of, of putting your number on the table. I mean, obviously, they'd put a number on two, two different numbers, one times revenue, two times revenue. And I guess it was fair for them to ask, well, what is your number? If, if one times revenue is, is not going to do it, two times revenue is not going to do it, what is your number? Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the danger, though, that you throw out a number like five times. Uh, you're always, this is, you know, there's a little part of you that wonders, well, you know, maybe they would have paid six, <laughs> like if, yeah. if they agreed to five. I still wonder about that. Sometimes. I was going to say, do you ever sort of, is there any part of you that wonders maybe, maybe they would have done more? Yeah. Yeah. There's part of me that wonders that. Um, and then there's a part of me that just says it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, don't get me wrong. Five times yeah. is an incredible number. I mean, we, got right? a so, deal. we got a yeah. good you know, We got a lot of money out of that. It was, you know, we've, we've invested in many companies and we bought multiple companies and sold multiple companies. And this has been our best overall return. And, um, I feel like we got a good value for the company and I feel like a was happy with what they paid. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and all of our, we, when we came in and we restructured the company, we made all the employees, uh, option holders. And even for the guys that there were some key people that weren't there that long, we gave them, uh, we even gave them some bonuses on top of what they got uh, from their options plan. Um, our, our philosophy is, you know, the guys that are in there 
making the magic happen should be rewarded in the end. And it's a key question I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs have is to, is to how much equity to have in the options pool. And, and, and I guess what the, the end result is, I mean, how much, you know, on a percentage of their annual salary would a rank and file employee of yours have made through the sale? Uh, like, would they have gotten you know, one-time salary, fifty percent of a year's salary, ten percent of a year's salary? Like, what, what did it ended up amount to? Yeah, what I what I usually did is I would give uh, we give options out that were about one times their salary. Okay. That that had your typical four-year uh, vesting cycle with like a one-year. Um, you know, cliff where it starts, uh, where, where they're not vested till they're there for a year. Um, and then they would get more over time if they, if they were really good performers. And, uh, and, and some guys, you know, the, the problem with those things, and we could probably talk for hours about just this topic, but the problem with those plans is that in the end, there are always some guys that you're going, really, they got that much money. They really didn't deserve that. Mm. And you got some guys where you're like, that guy really didn't get nearly as much as he deserved. And it, that's, that's one thing I don't really like about those plans, and one reason why we supplemented um, some of that with uh, with some bonuses. But um, you know, but generally speaking, I, I think it's I think it's good to have at least your key employees have some kind of sense of ownership. What advice would you give someone who's, who's structuring their first options plan? <laughs> I don't do it. No, um, it's uh, I would say that. First of all, just try to keep it as simple as you can. Um, you know, it, depending on your lawyer, you can go down a lot of rat holes with those things. To so make sure that you have the ability to get the options back if they leave the company. Um, you know, they can have the option of buying, executing the option and buying the stock maybe when they leave. But you should, if they don't do that, you should get those options back. Um, and make sure that you know th there's at least a one-year period of time where if a year hasn't gone by, that they have zero vesting. Um, you know, last thing you want to do is have an unexpected liquidity event and have somebody that's been there for three months walk away with a big pile of money. Um, and I'm also not a big fan of uh, of accelerating vesting on a transaction you know, for the same reason. You can have somebody that's been there for a year and they end up getting a check for a fully vested amount, um, the same amount of some guy that's put in four years of you know that grueling hard work to to make the thing happen. I don't think that's equitable. One of the other things that um, you did in your case was insist on cash up front. How hard was it to get the cash up front as opposed to an earnout or some sort of longer term structure? Yeah, we were you know we were pretty lucky that the uh, the crew guys were eager to get the deal done. Um, I think they they realized how hairy the the other acquisition was that they bought, and um, and they it turns out that accruent was that the private equity firm that owned accruent was in the process of selling accruent while they were in the process of buying us. Hmm. So from their perspective, when we threw that out, they were they received it actually pretty well because they thought, hey, this is just going to simplify. Uh, we've got this other thing going on in the background, so it's going to simplify things. So they were actually pretty open to it. I was surprised. 
Interesting, because that can obviously be a sticking point. I, I, I would have thought on some level, you, you'd obviously found some secret sauce that they would have wanted to retain you or Troy or both of you guys in some sort of, you know, to run the joint company or to have some sort of influential role. But now that you say that Accruent itself was potentially on the market, I can see how that, that may have been less interesting to them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they, the, the company Accruent is a very well-run company. They have... Um, Great processes. They were they used to be owned by this uh, private equity firm called Vista Equity down in um, Austin, Texas, and Vista has a, a very specific model they use to build up these companies uh, and to build some great talent and to put some uh, some good operational controls and, and business processes in place. And they felt confident that they could take what we had and and build it out fairly quickly and um, and didn't really need us on board. And, and part of our, by the way, part of the deal we put on the table was, and we're not gonna stay longer than six months. So that was- Cash up front, six months. Yeah, because we didn't, neither Troy nor I wanted to stay with it. <laughs> You're describing like the, the exit every single entrepreneur <laughs> wants. You know, like we're gonna get phone calls saying, oh yeah, I, I want it just like Hank. Can we make my exit just like Hank? <laughs> Well, the key was, you know, we weren't trying to sell the company. We didn't go through a process. We, you know, it was, these guys came to us and the market was really hot. And, uh, you know, that's a, that can be a good time to sell if the, you know, for Troy and I, we do a lot of investing. So we knew what the market was for a company like ours. So we didn't really need an investment banker to take it out and shop it. We had a general sense of what it was worth. Um, you know, as, and we weren't necessarily trying to maximize the value as much as we were making sure we got a good deal. That was enough, um, to, to make it worth exiting, which is what it ended up being. How did this, I'd love to talk about the emotional side of selling a company because obviously there was a lot of emotional equity you'd invested in this business, right down from the early days when you were negotiating the, the kind of workout with the original investors, you know, all the way through the, the, the pivot of the product. Um, you know, what was the emotional impact for you personally uh, when that check sort of the wire cleared and it was in your bank account? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever gone through. One of the hardest things I've ever gone through personally. Um, it was a lot of my identity was tied up in the company. Um, we had been through so many hard times. And once we had, we had rebranded the company Mainspring, we had this strong why statement. Uh, and we started to build the company and hire people around that why. We had so many just amazing employees that were uh, and still that were and still are very close friends of mine and um, it was it was very difficult so once that was done and I was no longer the guy that could just unilaterally make decisions uh, and I was just sitting there kind of shepherding things along for six months it was it was absolutely grueling and I was depressed and I couldn't sleep um, I had really bad insomnia for a year um, it was really hard and, you know, the money was great. I mean, the money showed up in our account and I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and, you know, and it, it just sat there for a long time. It didn't really, uh, change much. Um, but, but the hard part really was that adjustment, uh, personally. And luckily I have a, a great wife and, uh, and great kids and they helped me through that period, but it wasn't easy. What advice would you give an entrepreneur who was, you know, a week away from closing day, they're, they're literally, you know, on Friday about to have the wire transferred into their account. What, what, what advice would you give that entrepreneur? You know, I, I think something that I wish I would have done uh, is, is right for closing. I wish I would have gone away for a week or so and 
let the dust settle a little bit and kind of collect my thoughts and and get my head around everything because it it went immediately from the close into um, it just so happened our lease was expiring the month we closed. So we, we moved in and co-located with a cruent within two days of closing the deal. Um, and it was just a whirlwind and it, it made it really hard to adjust, uh, personally. So I, I think don't underestimate, um, the impact it's going to have on you when, when you realize that you sold the company, you're no longer in charge anymore. And all of these people that you, hired and brought on as part of your team and you know you made a i made promises to them around the things we were going to do and i made promises to our customers on the things we were going to help them try to accomplish and you know when you sell the company you sell out on those promises at some level and that's a pretty hard thing to get your head around so i, I think taking some time you know, a few days or a week and um you know and really trying to process some stuff without being in the middle of it uh, would would have helped a lot how did the original investor pool that still retained that 10% that was growing every year that you didn't sell, how did they react to, you know, your negotiations with the Cruent and the ultimate sale? You know, they were, they were unbelievably thrilled. Every single one of them was absolutely thrilled. They had written this investment off as zero a long time ago, and they didn't even think they were going to get their money back. And, you know, I had, Guys say, my God, you just wrote me a check that's going to get my kids through college. And, uh, you know, thank you so much. I can't believe you guys actually pulled this off. And that was, that was, uh, you know, that really helped balance some of the other negative feelings afterward is, uh, is that investment does that, those investors in you know, that group of whatever, 10 guys, um, were being, they were so grateful and that really did help. Well, you, you, you kept them whole on an investment that ultimately you probably could have diluted them down to nothing, but uh, you chose not to. And, and that obviously paid back for you in the ecosystem of the world on some level. Um, yeah. You know, some of those guys have invested with me in other deals since then, too. So, um, you know, it's, it's a small world and you, you don't want to you don't necessarily want to burn those bridges. You know, there's there's no reason to. That's a very good point. Hank. Thank you so much for sharing the story. I know you've helped a lot of people write down to you know how to structure earnouts, how to or structure options, the whole thought process around selling, when to sell, cycles. So tons of great stuff. Hey, what, it, you know, is there an ask you have of our audience? Do you want them to go to a website or to it, what? What would you like people to do if if they were to get in touch with you? Uh, you know, you can reach out to me through LinkedIn. Uh, you can send me an email um, directly uh, to my work email address, which is H Goddard at mainspringcap.com, which is Mainspring Capital Partners, a, a private equity firm that it's really a family office that uh, I invest through. Um, happy to uh, talk to anybody about what they're going through, um, share my, my thoughts and experiences. Um, always like to help. Hey, Goddard, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 
Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.